want a shot of tequila. I need to go. Let's go. Yeah. Welcome back to Solid Six Podcast. I'm your host, Allison DeGrazio. And as always, I'm joined by my two stop motion man dolls, Brady Kimball and Joshua Griffith. I'm broken on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Okay. Uh, this week, we're finishing my uber easy film style choice of experimental horror with the Brothers Quay collection of short films. <laughs> Yay. I just want to take a second. I want to apologize to the audience and my co host for choosing such an easy and not at all multi-fucking-layered art thirst trap of a couple of films to talk about. Um, Obviously, Begotten was kind of on par with breaking down the Halloween Smurf special uh, where Gargamel kills himself using a straight razor and Smurfette gets pregnant by association and then gives birth to the Great Pumpkin. Much like last week, we'll probably just zip through the simple Quay Brothers narratives and talk about their overuse of underpaid doll laborers making robot dresses and dancing to the dude who plays fiddle for all of Danny Elfman's musical scores. <laughs> Holy smokes. I'm so annoyed with what I've done this week. This, uh, this dystopian nightmare, I'm just envisioning that's what Amazon warehouse workers live in. <laughs> they're, they're, like, their yeah, brains they're all get... like clockwork automatons, yeah. like being paid in dust. Yes, exact dust and like bad, like your grandmother's dress sewing pack. Shuttling like cicada shells from like one box to another with, on like a bin that's like made out of light bulbs. Yes, yes. With the circus organ music just constantly playing in the background. Yes. Yeah. So that's right, nerds. That's right. This week's episode's just going to be super easy. Yes. <laughs> I love it. But let, be- alone, let alone the fact that we are not covering one, but like... No, like 30 small. 30 movies. Yeah, yeah. Really, so. that's fine. It's shorts. So there's, our production notes format didn't really work for this. So Allison broke the podcast. I did. I did. There's not enough time in the world right. to go into like a deep dive of Brothers Quay. This could be like an entire podcast by itself with it like... Could- its own 60 episodes. You're right. You're right. And it still wouldn't be enough. <laughs> and it still wouldn't be enough. No, we I would think, need I like the... My, f- I think my heart literally just skipped a beat. I was like, I, oh shit. <laughs> I know, I know. You would need the first 20 to just talk about their hair choices alone. So true. anyway, so before we get started, I wanted to remind you all to subscribe, rate, and review our show wherever you listen. It goes a long way in helping us to get our message out about how the guitarist of Tool actually did all of the artistic direction for their sober music video and all the Gen Xers can shut the fuck up about it. So wait, what's going on, with Tool? Oh, well, so you know how everyone was like, "Oh, Brothers Quay did the Tool video, fuck yeah!" And then, and oh, then, or the okay, other, yeah, the that, other, that. the other side of that coin is, is a lot of people are saying, 
oh my god, Tool totally ripped off Brothers Quay. Blah, blah, blah. So fucking yeah, Kurt Cobain. Yeah. yeah, yes, Kurt Cobain, the the prince of the '90s. I just realized that I don't know anybody in Tool other than Maynard Keenan. I'm sure they know that everyone else thinks the exact same thing too. <laughs> <laughs> he has a winery, and he lives in the middle of nowhere uh, in Arizona. Shots fired at Jerome, Arizona. Actually, I've been there, and it's 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 very cool. I highly recommend going to. I was there last April. <laughs> oh, is that the place where it's, they're kind of like standoffish to tourists? It's like a mining town that's built on like a switchback. It's really weird. It's really really mm. high up, and there's found iron art everywhere, mm-hmm. and a lot of skeletons. And Maynard has a presence. Do you uh, think all the locals call tourists tools behind their back? And they think they're being really funny. They're like, hey, look at those tools coming into our town. Wait, I, I legitimately think that that's very funny. I'm just having a hard time <laughs> laughing. <laughs> Toolerists? Oh, we're just here oh, to have the, the Maynard wine. Thanks a lot. Also, I was so frustrated about the amount of work that I unlocked for ourselves to like get started with this yeah. that I just was just ranting at home in my intro. Hey, I'm just curious, not, yeah. to, not to derail you completely, but no. like when we did the Begotten episode last week, did you guys get like blown up in your inboxes, and like our Instagram feeds or anything like that? Because I got a lot of responses. Um, I had two, two, two people, okay, which were came from people who I was fully expecting to have it come from. Okay, what were their like main questions about the movie? One or of them, concerns or whatever. One of them was like the fire reaction of like that movie's uh, fucking fire. Fire, yeah. And another one was like, it's been on my list. I just, you know, haven't like had time to watch it yet. I've heard it's really brutal. The second one yeah. matches the, the bulk of the response I got, which was a lot of people knew about the movie, but they were sort of like intimidated by it because of its reputation. I think the reputation's a little bit bigger than the movie. I agree. As, as we talked about last week. Yeah. I, if you've had Begotten on your list... You should just watch it. Yeah, just check it out. It's like you're that, grown up. Yeah. You're you're a big kid. You can turn it off. So, oh, someone messaged me. Oh no, no, no. Someone made a comment on our on our Instagram that they said that they tried to watch it, but it was the, the sound effects alone were too grotesque. So they turned the sound off and then played tool over it. <laughs> Maybe this is the tool series. Uh oh. Never mind. I'll take it back immediately. <laughs> Delete that idea. I'll take it right back. <laughs> um I did have one person give me feedback directly and they pretty much almost verbatim said my review, which if people haven't listened to it, I said that the director of Marriage had lamented that this movie was co-opted by horror fans. And I uh, proceeded to besmirch horror fans for their superficial ways. You know, And I had an independent person whose opinion is well-researched <laughs> say something very similar. So I, uh, I felt very smug you know, about but myself. He, he also has horror fans to thank for getting the images out there for more people to see it. Yeah, but if they're, they're getting they're the metal- wrong message of like, it's too gnarly to watch, that's, but that's that a horror fan all, narrative. All press is good press. And if they're saying that, it, if they're saying it's too intense to watch, like metal fans, like people who are wearing like satanic imagery are going like, this movie is fucking crazy. Like they're going to get like 14 year old Christian girls to watch it. Cause right. they be like, we need to know what we're up against when we go out. We talk to those sinners. And, totally. And it, this is basically <laughs> the equivalent of like Mormon temple secret handshake shit where Metalheads are like, yeah, it's too gnarly to watch, but in reality, they're winking like, oh, if you can hang with this, you can hang out with my metal crew. I think you should do it. I think if it's been on your list and you've been concerned about it because maybe, I don't know, just watch the movie. It's not that bad. Just watch the damn movie. Yeah. Just watch the damn movie. 
I don't want to go on too much of a tangent here, but I, ha- I do have late. to say that we're 63 episodes in now, and I recognize that there is this thing called public perception because there's recorded evidence, and I just need to clarify the fact that I love horror movies. <laughs> I love horror fans. <laughs> I love metal. So just want to make sure that I'm doing a bit. Everyone understands that. They don't understand. But anyway, I need to telegraph that because we live in a <clears throat> lifeless, laughless world where people don't understand humor and jokes. So. I got it. Well, like, we'll be talking about this later on in the show, but we're going to be talking about how art art imitates life. But it, it, our art, our, our just like bottom of the barrel bitter sarcasm mm-hmm. is reflective of our environment. Hey. Mm. You know? You know what? I'm not going to bring it up. I'm going to let the New York Times and the, and the, the oh, letters sent to the New York Times from Portland okay. speak for All itself. Right. I see what you're saying there. Okay. But... Well, if we're on tangents, can we talk about the t-shirt you're wearing? Oh, yeah. Tell the world. <laughs> so Allison has a t-shirt with Garfield wearing a cowboy hat. And the t-shirt says, when I die, I may not go to heaven. I don't know if they let cowboys in. I, a friend of mine sent me the, the image of the shirt and I like I died. I was like, I need this t-shirt. It's pretty fantastic. I need. And speaking of smug satisfaction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amen, brother. Thank you, Jim Davis. Pretty sure, actually, heaven's only made up of cowboys. John Wayne, you're in. Speaking of cowboys, (laughs) you remember last week when I was talking about how I was concerned that I had had a hernia? Yeah. And so I was like, I was like walking around work all last week, like I had been riding a horse for like six months. (laughs) It was just. Were you wearing a bandana around your neck? Oh, I should have. That would have been so trendy. No, yeah, I, a lot I was, of moseying. There was it was a Allison had a mosey. I had a, I had a very distinct mosey inviting people back to like my treatment room, going like, "Are you ready for your Brazilian little lady?" And like, <laughs> following them back in, just trying not to sneeze or laugh at anything because my abdominal muscles had gone to shit last week. No, the doctor said I just deeply, deeply strained my abdominal muscles and that women are less likely to get hernias because we're stronger than men. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I know. Uh, anyway, so before we keep... <laughs> so, <laughs> before... Fuck! Uh, so, I just... Uh, before we get too far down whatever road that was, um, <laughs> I just want to remind the audience that you can leave us a voicemail by going to solid6.net and pressing the microphone icon where you can leave us exactly two minutes of uh, you Gabin about how the brothers Quaid definitely communicate telepathically to one another when they share thoughts and secrets. That was a terrible joke. Please. <laughs> they pass notes Is in the classroom like, of their mind. No, no, no. They've got that like twin speak going on. They it's definitely like, do. Yeah. Like those little fidgets, they mean things. Yeah. They're, they're communicating through like hand signals and like little like facial tics. They, so I like maybe our listeners don't know that the brothers Quay look like they are both albino imagine uh data from star trek next yes. generation but two like, but two of them and they both play saxophone <laughs> mixed mixed with german lesbians in their 60s there you go yeah 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 put that all together in your mind yes that's and what then, it is and then having like they speak for each other and then they communicate telepathically while they're having conversations out loud like they they must be they have some kind they of like each other's essence going on right so like whenever they like someone gets stumbled yeah. The other one chimes in. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Just like I, just just, like I just did. Like <laughs> like, just like right there. We're doing it. We're doing it right now. <laughs> Let's like fidget with our hands. And I don't know why that we like, we, I watched so many interviews with Brothers Quay this week. And like, it seemed like if you just pan the, the camera down just a little bit, 
like and see what's going on in their laps. They're just like moving their hands continuously. Imagine <laughs> if, if you're like a puppeteer for like 40 years, you're probably used to it, right? You're like always like working with your hands and like, yeah. oh boy. They're just like spelling out like Kafka and puppet like with their hands <laughs> over and over and over again. Every single time. <laughs> but oh I digress. Well, I mean, but on that note, I hear we have a voicemail. We do. It's been a couple of weeks, but this one comes in from a listener named Vaughn. What's up, Vaughn? Hi, Vaughn. All right. Hi, Vaughn. Begotten. It was a great film. The visuals, the way it was made, the soundtrack, the whole thing is awesome. I wish that that film would get out on the UHD, which is like the premier Blu-ray format nowadays, um, because I think it would really work really well. His other films... Shadow of the Vampire, I love. I haven't seen Suspect Zero. I don't know if even you can find it nowadays unless you rip it, you know, steal it from the internet. Rip um, it good. Whatever. The Brothers Quay, I love Alice. I haven't seen the short in a long time, but I've seen Alice a bunch of times in the last handful of years since I found the DVD. And I love it. Love their work. Two things. Two directors I wish, well, I don't think you guys would do, but you never know. You really want to go to the extreme angle of hard stuff to watch. That sounds like Two a threat. Directors, Lucifer Valentine and Ryan Nicholson. Ryan Nicholson makes films that are exploitation. Or like, because he was a he was an FX guy, he made a lot of hardcore, violent, FX-laden films um, that are just not for everybody's liking. I don't mind them. I didn't particularly like the guy himself. Sadly, he's dead of cancer. What can you do? Lucifer Valentine. I don't mind him. I don't like the guy, per se. But the movies he makes, I think, are interesting, kind of art house nightmares. Um, there's a short he made called A Perfect Child of Satan. Whoa. If you can find it, I'd watch it. Allison might not like it. Oh, yeah, I've heard of that one. Because it's a little aggressive, and all his films are very aggressive, vomit and, and violence. Just, ugh. I don't know. He's got one called Gutter Balls um, that I seem to be, I'm drawn yeah, to. That's all I have to say. You know, if you really want to take it to the extreme <laughs> the kind of stuff, the underground stuff, it's that's where it is. You know, those guys are pushing it. There's plenty of guys out there, guys, and I say this, men are mostly doing this, um, that push the uh, envelope of that shit. Bye. Look at that, right at two minutes. Oh, man. The very end, he started sounding like an energy drink rep. I just, I feel like, like... Thank you, Vaughn. He, he, he emphasized men so much mm-hmm. that um, I feel like there's money to be made as a woman doing films. Yes. <laughs> Get it together, ladies. So uh, thinking back a few episodes to when we were covering Stone Cold. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Tyler was on here talking about some Japanese horror movies. Like He like, called yeah, them... Uh, like Sewer Mermaid or yeah. something. I can't remember the names, but they're pink films. Pink films, yeah. Pink yeah. films. And mm-hmm. it, they're known for being extreme. Yes. Wait, was okay. he saying hamster films? Pink hamster. Wasn't he saying Maybe. that? Probably. I don't remember. I don't this, this, this isn't a, a cesspool that I usually swim in. I, I swim in different cess. Got it. I mean, like the double feature that we're going to be. I'm so <laughs> excited. Next. I am yeah. so excited about what we're going to be doing Stop, next. I can't even it. contain. Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Well, so I mean, how are you guys? I mean, I wasn't born in the spotlight. <laughs> I had to grind to shine. And all the toil and the struggle <laughs> helps to hang my hustle. <laughs> uh, I'm not sorry. I had to get that out. Uh, no, I mean, literally, hustlers rotted your brain. It definitely did. All that, all those candy-colored G-strings just like <laughs> ruined me. I don't blame you. 
I've been doing all right. You know, happy summer, guys. It's it's officially summer now. Welcome. I just <laughs> everyone you. in Portland's dying. <laughs> yeah, everyone's they're all dying of heat stroke right now. Yep. Uh, so oh, one thing, weird thing happened to me today, actually, I'll just mention this real quick. So I was walking down the street to go get a cup of coffee because the coffee, the little cafe at my work is, is garbage. And I just, it's, it's better just to go walk a block away and get some real coffee. So I got some coffee and as I'm waiting for it, like I noticed, uh, because it faces the I-5 interstate that traffic was completely stopped on the interstate and all of the cars on the interstate were the same car. They were all like all that. What I I saw like it was a it was the little the little gap of the freeway that I could see. Yeah. it was like twenty identical white trucks. That's horrifying. <laughs> Are you serious? Was and there they, some- and they were all stopped on the freeway. Was there like a rally going on? I don't know what was going on. Stop the steal, you but I, idiots! Yeah, right. <laughs> so I, I was looking at it like what is. And I just kind of kept looking at it and looking at it and looking at it and like, what is going on? I thought that I had sort of drifted into like a X-Files episode or a glitch in the matrix, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But then after a minute, the cars on the far, far lane started to move again. I was like, okay, everything's back to normal. Like, or, or maybe just like the lag time on the computer that's running the simulation just like caught up to where we're at. <laughs> it was just a very peculiar moment for a freeway to be stopped completely and nothing but identical cars <laughs> to be on the road. I like I, I trucks actually. That's actually re- that's I find that really upsetting. That would yeah. It was it was like uh, jarring for me personally because I was just like, what, what? Absolutely. I mean, it's like let, that would be one of those moments. Like you know, have you ever had like a like a, a glitch in the matrix moment? Well, it's like a deja, some, deja vu like, moment, like, like an insane coincidence. Yes, yes, but it, but mm. that stuff like that. I find like deeply in my bones upsetting. There is a whole, um, maybe it's like, maybe it's like trucks for gays. Maybe it had something to do for pride. I hope so. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> trucks for gays. <laughs> trucks for gays. I don't know. <laughs> T4G, baby. I'm trying to make it better. <laughs> T4G all day, every day. Boom. Maybe they were just waiting to like raise their rainbow flag high. I don't know. Uh, other than that, other than the weirdo um, moment this morning, like the only movie of note that I watched this week, well, we watched a couple movies this week, mm-hmm. but the only thing I will say is that I completed my Mission Impossible series and then I finally got to Mission Impossible 5 Rogue Nation. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. was the setup for Mission Impossible 6, which was really good. 5 is not as quite as good. Uh, Rogue Nation's not as good as Fallout. It's still pretty good. That's still the one with good. the sandstorm, correct? Uh, like the song? And What's that? he's outrunning a sandstorm? No, this one's no, one where I he's think, like, he's like on the side of a jet. I think jet. that's Ghost Protocol is what yeah, you're referring okay. to. Okay. Ghost fucking Protocol? Who's, <laughs> Who's naming uh, these things? On? You know what they need? Is it me? Tom, Tom, Clancy's, <laughs> Tom Clancy's children. <laughs> yeah. Now, this is, this is the one where... Fuck. Yeah, he's hanging on the outside of an airplane. Uh, there's actually a really great, like, not, not, no irony, no jokes, a really fantastic motorcycle chase in this one. Oh, yeah. Uh, because, okay. like, there's lots, and that's a, a recurring theme in these Mission Impossible movies is that they, they like their motorcycle chases, and I'm fucking down for it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're good. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I really, really like the scene where he got himself out of, like, the, I don't know, like, the, the Russian 
Dr. Bones is going to kill him and he like flips up. And oh, over yeah. The pole. He was doing I, some crazy gymnastic like, shit. Remember when we talked about this? Yeah. Parkour. That's, that's my new fitness goal. I'm going to like slide up, up vertically up a pole. Yeah. And to like get away flip from over. A, a bone crusher. This is what I'm saying is because we right. can't we can't engage in a technological manner because it's like if we if you mess it up. People are going to get mad, mm-hmm. but if you can, if you can make the human body turn into Tom Cruise, we're in for that. We believe it. We believe the extremes that it can go because he's actually doing. It. I know I he's know. such a maniac, and that's the thing that I love that he brings to these Mission Impossible movies is that he's such a maniac, and that he does all his own stunts. And like, no matter what you think about Tom Cruise, he's working his fucking ass off. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, how are you doing, Brady? I'm at that point in the show. <clears throat> you know the part, the phlegm part. This is my phlegm part. <laughs> I'm good. I uh, yeah, I've been good. I just recorded an episode with Dirk for the VHS podcast. Oh, right and then you've be been seeing one. Dirk without us. Yes, it's true. I uh, debating whether or not to tell you guys or not. Doesn't even call you by the right name. Brambly. Mm. Oh, <laughs> if you only knew the names that he called you behind your back. <laughs> Yeah, we covered uh, Evil Cat, um, which is a 80s Hong Kong horror, not horror, but like superstitious martial arts movie. Yeah. Contemporary. So it's like set in the 80s. And then going to be doing a episode here shortly with Vaughn um, about the 36th Chamber uh, trilogy. So been watching a lot of movies that normally I would talk about, but I'll save those for other shows. Yeah. Is... is, uh Sorry, Evil Cat. Is mm-hmm. it anything like a Magic Cop or like the Vampire Cop series, the Uncle Fang stuff? I think so, a little bit. Okay, yeah. Dirk mm-hmm. talked about that, um, but I had never seen Magic Cop. Magic Cop is a hoot, or Mister Vampire. Yeah. So. You know, Dirk just has to talk to you, Josh, and then. Yep. Then cut out the middleman. Go straight to oh, the hardcore right. drugs. Yeah, I'm the I'm the only one that hasn't done mm-hmm. jerk stuff yet. I know. Yeah, you know, I'm gonna dress you up in a pretty hat. Oh. Send him your way. Oh boy. Let me uh, give you all the tips and tricks on that. Okay. All right. Um, so because I can't talk about movies, I'll just kind of bring something up random that happened that's actually kind of like your freeway story. Uh-oh. But it's not a glitch in the system. It's it's more one of those, like, I was put in a position of being an authority figure when I have no right being an authority figure in the position. Okay. And so I had to stare down the barrel of this gun of, like, do I come across like I'm a fraud or do I act like I know what I'm talking about? You always act like you know what you're yeah. talking about. So yeah, fake it till you make it. Present confidence. Yeah. Put your hands in the Superman position okay. and yell. All right. Well, what if I told you that the authority, the position of authority that I was in was to let a man know whether or not the car that he was walking up to was his car? Oh, I mean. He wasn't all there. So we were. Was we, he 80? <laughs> what was the matter? <laughs> no. Hashtag Portland. He was younger than that. He had a sick purple burgundy shirt on kind of like you know my color the, everything you're wearing right yeah. now yeah um, an obey shirt that was tucked into some khakis we need to get brady committed because he's talking about himself <laughs> third person yeah yeah and it's on it's on tape i just feel like if you need to just let off some steam that's true well i'm doing it i'm, I'm letting steam off right now okay so he walks up to a car that may or may not be his yeah so i'm at the end of the parking lot and i'm getting my shoes on because i'm switching into hiking shoes and so his car is next to mine at the very end. And he walks up and pauses and looks at his car and then looks at me and says, this is my car, right? I said, yep, totally. He's like, okay. Wait. <laughs> Are you serious? Yes. Are you? Mm. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. 
So do you think that he would have tried to get in the car if I hadn't said, yes, it was his car? Like, what would have happened if I was like, no, this isn't your car, bro? Well, if I were you, what I would have done... I have questions. I would have, I would have pretended, A, I would have pretended you didn't hear anything. And then B, I would have slipped away, but, but still in a sense where you're hidden, but can watch the scenario. Yeah. Well, you know, when I got my Eagle Scout merit badge. Are uh, you an Eagle Scout? Of course I am. Are you both Eagle Scouts? Yeah. Why wouldn't I be? Do I look like somebody who's not part of the Eagle's Nest? (laughs) (laughs) So that's where you and I differ is that I was taught to actually help people who don't know where their car is. I was in Pioneer Girls because the Girl Scouts were too liberal. Oh, shit. (laughs) Pioneer Girls. Never heard of this. We got Bible verse badges. Yes. Awesome. Surprised you haven't heard of it. Uh, So, yeah, (laughs) nothing to do with Boy Scouts. But, yeah, I, uh, I, yeah, what would you do, Josh? Allison would hide. Uh, I would, no, I'm a nice person. I would have said something. It depends. Okay, what was the the guy wearing again? A burgundy obey shirt tucked into khaki shorts. Did he look like a dickhead? No, he looked like a sweet old man. So wait a minute. Oh. Do you guys have to? Were your guys' cars oh. at all similar? <laughs> no. Oh no! I would have. I would have like called his daughter. You know he's got it. It's always the daughter who's like who's like. Oh. Exactly. <laughs> so now you're getting meta. You're you're right. going the right way with this. What you're kind sleuthing of, correctly. What kind of car is he trying to get into? That he think was his car, like a white van. Okay. And you know I've got a gray. Don't tell the world. I've got a gray Ferrari. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> it's a Lotus. <laughs> Boy, yeah, I'm starting to lean Allison's way there. That, like that, that's more of a like a sad old man situation. I you, was thinking of like, a, so I didn't help him enough. No, that's like a third party situation. I was, you need to I bring was in a professional, like a uh, like a, a yacht club, like drunk BMW dickhead no. situation. Aha. And, and not the sad old man. Yes. He's dead now. Wait. <laughs> I should have waited. He's gone to a better place. He shouldn't be on the road. Or, or it was probably the most exciting afternoon of his, night, of his life. That would make sense because yeah, that, we were out in the middle of nowhere. Or he's just like It was a, a great he, afternoon for him. Yeah. Or he's like a, just a character. That's just something he says to everyone. If that's the case, oh, it's like he's like nudging his best friend. He's like, watch this fucking idiot. I'm going to mess with them. Yeah, he's Young just trolling man. people. Young man. Hey. Is this my car? Is this my car? <laughs> and of course, I fell right into the trap. I was socially engineered, and I was like, of course. Yeah. And then he gives you, like, the weird little, like, three fingers circle sign. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, now I'm unsettled. <sighs> That's me. How you doing, Allison? Uh, uh, it's, I'm, I'm good. It's been a, it's, you know, I had, I had a, a I went to the doctor. I was concerned that perhaps I had a hernia. Uh, come to find out, my abdominal muscles are Women don't get hernias are are unterrible. Mm-hmm. So whatever I did, um, I I know I, I deeply strained my abdominal muscles trying to kick like a pro, and I I I don't I haven't moved my meat sack body in over a year, and I'm like in my mid thirties, and I'm just thinking like like oh I danced forever, like I can just go and I can just like do things, and my body just was protesting, and and it was like. <laughs> I was like, please sit down. Please, like, just stop. Stop. I need you to relax. Um, and I need you to never do that again. So, Allison's being modest right now. She was going for a helicopter kick. I wish. Chun-Li style? Yeah. yeah absolutely. Uh, no, but I, I, like, mess my shit up. And then to meet me halfway, because Miha loves me so much, she also went to the doctor this week 
So meet me halfway. Um, <laughs> across the sky. Across the sky, yeah. She had cat surprise emergency vet, so that put a kind of damp on things. But we did watch a really, really great movie uh, recently that came out 2019. It's yeah, called, like, called Snatchers. Yeah, Snatchers. Mm. Uh, which was a delight. That was wonderful. Um, that was directed by Stephen Cedars and Benji Kleiman. Kleiman. It's basically about this um, Aztec curse that gets loose into like a young, studly man who comes back and has sex with his girlfriend. She gets pregnant, but she's like she's like nine months pregnant the next day, and she shoots out this like weird alien demon, and it's fabulous. Um, the the two lead ladies are hilarious. It's a ton of fun. Kind of a weird sci-fi horror theme. Yeah, if you like uh, ghoulies or critters or something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, it it was a lot of fun. It's not. It gets a little. It gets a little over the top near the end, but still a great movie. Highly recommend it. Yeah, it's it's it was like a good, good new form teen movie. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I very much enjoyed it. I liked the idea that it was a comedy horror movie built around the anxiety of pregnancy. Yeah. Right? Because like the whole like the whole plot device is she wants to keep things secret, but she can't because she basically was, she had sex and basically was nine months pregnant, like within a day. Yes. Yes. Uh, so I, I thought that was a lot of fun. I think that there are some moments where it gets like a little too cute, like a little too self-assured and that kind of like, it was almost like a, like a fourth wall break. Where I was like, I felt like I was being winked at for oh, a little, yeah, little yeah. bit, yeah. Particularly towards the end, yeah. But for most of it, and also the friendship between the two main ladies, I thought was great. Um, I think I gave it like four and a half stars on Letterbox. Like it's it's pretty it's pretty great. Like mm-hmm. uh, popcorn entertainment, based on the way you're describing it, and then the screenshots that I can see, it, it almost looks like a Judd Apatow like teenage kind of comedy. It's like uh, of. Uh, um, Booksmart meets Night of the Creeps. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. It's 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 super it's super funny. It was like right right what I needed. So that was a lot of fun. Well, you know. got uh, you got Snatchers, which now fills in the gap for Snatch. Literally. <laughs> You got Snatch. You've got the Candy Snatchers from the 70s. You have Hard Candy with Elliot Page. Oh, I never saw that. So now you need Hard Snatchers. What is Hard Snatchers? Are you serious? No, I'm saying that's the sequel to Snatchers. (laughs) Snatchers 2, Hard Snatchers. Samuel L. Jackson. I got all tingly for a second. I'm like, is there really? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Oh, boy. Amazing. So, yeah, that's kind of been it. So... I'm happy we're all doing well. So kind of go into this just like last week. We are, we're discussing our experimental horror. Yes. Brothers Quaid isn't necessarily horror, Mm -hmm. so to speak, but it really, really does evoke some of that visceral response to when we see a certain, I guess maybe certain emotional cues, certain, um, they're deliberately creepy. They are creepy. It's creepy. creepy. They're pushing those buttons. Yes. So Brothers Quay do, they are two twin brothers who have created an entire series of short uh, stop-go animations that use a lot of mechanical parts, kind of half-built armatures, uh, a lot of Victorian dolls, lots of symmetry, but they, they, they talk about frequently thinking of themselves more as choreographers rather than directors. Uh, so mm. we find in their films that the music actually takes the uh, the front row seat. And so this last week, we spent time watching a collection 
of their short films. So I think between the three of us, we've probably watched about yeah. <laughs> what, like Holy smokes. 20, 30. 20. Yeah, exactly. So we're just going to kind of go over stylistically cause it's kind of, you can't just kind of yeah. pick one. So we're going to go over stylistically what they've been working with. And I'd love to introduce to you the collection of brothers Quay. And Timothy Quay were born in 1947, which is blows my mind because I think their work um, seems so modern mm-hmm. that I keep forgetting that these these two guys are in their 70s and have been doing this since the 70s. Mm-hmm. But they have they reside in England. They've been there since 1969. Nice. Um, <laughs> <and> <laughs> where they went out there and they they studied at the Royal College of Art in London. And they were studying uh, illustration. While they were there, they were really taken aback by a lot of uh, Polish artists, uh, artists that were doing also stop stop motion animations, but also but were doing a lot of uh, movie posters. So we had people like, uh, and I'm gonna I, just like anything, I'm gonna mispronounce these names terribly, so I apologize. But um, Jan uh, Lenica was a Polish graphic designer, Polish illustrator, and cartoonist um, who collaborated with Walerian Barowisk. Help me out, guys. Walerian Barowisk. Walerian Barowisk, who was another inspiration for the Quay Brothers, um, who was a painter, director, and um, maybe a pornographer? Mm. Ah! Uh, The, uh, what do they call it? Obscure Pleasures. Yes. Of Walerian Barowisk. Yes. So, I mean, he, he considered himself more of a abstract absurdist kind of a art films he's yes, making art mm. big quotes big air quote on those but uh fancy pornography perhaps uh sexually abstract videos he, he's definitely like an interesting <laughs> filmmaker like i watched a little bit of his stuff and like yeah i can see how the his uh confrontational edge takes him into like sexual places and why he might have acquired the title of pornographer. Yes. Although I do think that he's just an artsy fartsy film director. Yeah. Yes. And uh, he and Jan worked together quite a bit. They worked together for uh, their stop go animation called Renaissance, which came out in 1964, which was uh, really inspirational for the brothers Quay. It's, it's a stop motion animation in the reverse devastation of a fire. Mm. Oh. There's a there's a a table with like a family portrait, a doll, a wicker basket, and a, a stuffed owl, and it's kind of the reverse of their destruction. I see. 
And you can see a lot of inspiration uh, or where the inspiration comes from for the Brothers Quay. There's a lot of... Um, yeah, if you follow the through lines, like if the, the individual references on their own all kind of like connect. Like yes. when we were doing research for the show, like it, it wasn't like the complete package, but you could kind of sense like, oh, okay, well that that there and this here. And, yes, yeah. yes. And, you know, there's there were kind of more obvious things like there, uh, there was a very um, screws coming unscrewed, like mm-hmm. unscrewing mm-hmm. themselves and falling over. Uh, uh, Victorian dolls with the tops of their heads taken off, um, running around, kind of moving on their own, uh, which we see a lot in Brothers Quay. Brothers Quay specifically, they pull a lot from all these different artists, but they have, I think, a more enveloping environment that they put the viewer in. Yeah, totally. Just to back it up just a moment, uh, when they're still in college, they were super interested in the poster work of... uh, Jan Lenica. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they showed a poster to the librarian, like, hey, like we're we're looking for more stuff like this. Like and the the librarian, and I'm not sure if the librarian or the basically the the clerk that worked at the school described it as Kafka esque. Yes. And they're like, Well, what does that mean? And <laughs> go it, look it up. Yeah, go look it up. And you know, and the rest is history. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were also truly inspired by Kafka, and many of uh, many of you may know also was the writer of the Metamorphosis, which which was um, published in 1915. Uh, who was who was known for being um, uh, super bizarre, very surrealistic, a lot of incomprehensible socio kind of bureaucratic craziness that was going on. So there's a lot of guilt, a lot of isolation that was going on in, in his works that I, I also think are mirrored quite quite strong in the Brothers Quay yeah, animations. To, uh, unanswerable questions, existential yeah. anxiety, yeah. A sen- like as you said, a sense of isolation or alienation or whatever. Yes. Yeah, so they're pulling from all sorts of different things. We talked about movie posters, we talked about animators, now we're talking about authors. So they also had Bruno Schultz, who was a Polish writer, who they based the short Street of, Cro- Street of Crocodiles mm-hmm. yeah. um, based off of his novel so they're they're pulling from all sorts of different i don't know Well, they're pulling Bruno. for all sorts of polish artists yes so uh and, and so it, it did make me wonder you know like okay so these were coming out in the 70s the the, the ones that the brothers quay were creating mm-hmm. but a lot of these works were coming out from the other artists um kind of mid-60s and yes. so you know i'm going back and i'm thinking like well what was happening what was happening in these men's lives that were contributing to such a emotional visceral art form that they were creating and what would it be the invasion of nazis into poland well nazis and communists yes so i mean like the like as we talked about this in the prep for the show it's like i don't know what the experiences of these artists were like in poland in like the 50s and 60s but basically you know uh, everyone knows that uh, the nazis invaded poland in 1939 destroyed half the country and then when the Soviet Union invaded to take take Eastern Europe back, destroyed it again. Uh, the communists never left. The, the Soviet Union remained in place. And the people in Poland probably were living with all kinds of like emotional and physical trauma of everything that happened in that time period, right? Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. I, I imagine like when you talk about like the themes of Kafka and like the sense of alienation, isolation, desperation, existential questions, et cetera, et cetera, like that had to be... I don't, you know, and the thing is, is like that. That also has to be true for most of Eastern Europe, right? Oh yeah, time. I mean, I mean. We, so, what is it specifically about the Polish artists and the Czech, right? So we we had the Czech yeah. animators. I don't know because okay. we also talked about. Um, no, you're right. Yeah, the Son of the White Mare, which was Hungary. Yeah, yeah, and uh, 
Ikari XB1 or whatever, which, which was, was Czech. Czech. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Right. Yeah. Which were all like hyper colorful, hyper emotional projects. Are mm-hmm. we just an Eastern European movie podcast? Boom. Now we are. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> Duh. And- dealing with, <laughs> dealing with art films. Heavy quotes. Was yeah. that heavy Huge air quotes? finger quotes. Yes. We're now an Eastern European hardcore pornography podcast. Boom. That's what I'm saying. Oh, I got, I got super excited. <laughs> Can you describe the look on my face when you said that? I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, joking okay. aside, I think there is there is something about that that really bleak struggle of just trying to get by and dealing with modern life and like building up from the kind of communist or the form of communism as demonstrated in these countries, mm-hmm. kind of the acceleration from like farms or towns to this, you know, really bleak, uh, yeah, cement, right. There's this like boring ass concrete city thing that is blended into the Quay brothers work. There's kind of like a disdain for industry yes. and like machinery or it's like accepted as part of the environment, mm-hmm. but with like a little bit of like reluctance, you know, it, it's, it's like a, an unwelcome visitor almost. Yes. Yeah. The way yeah. it's all perceived. Something I'll just mention real quick uh, before we get too far into the Quay Brothers aesthetic, aesthetic is that uh, last week when we watched Begotten, like I slept like a baby, <laughs> like no problems, whatever. Last night I was tossing and turning with all kinds of Quay Brothers nightmares. <laughs> 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 we were on like a Quay Brothers blitz watching it all. Uh, we watched like I don't know how many in a row, but we watched a bunch in a row. And like all last night, I was unsettled by the Quay Brothers in my mind, in my psyche. You know, and it, and it's a different it's a different type of um, kind of I think subconscious horror. If if maybe that's what we should have t- titled the series. Yeah. But there's something the Quay Brothers do not consider themselves horror filmmakers. No. Um, however, or, or experimental. They bristle at the term. Oh yes. However. They are still creating films and images and a, and a sense of unease with their projects. And I, I wanted to know what, what is there about, what is it about the viewership that associates these images with being automatically terrifying or automatically, you know, unsettling or horror inducing? I was doing a little bit of reading and I came across that basically f- the, the sense is fear has a really strong genetic component and it's very easy to selectively breed fears into a single generation. And if those fears are continued generation for generation, we would have kind of a blanketed, um, a a blanket set of images or a blanket set of sounds or a blanket set of, um, feeling that would cause a deep unease in, in many, many people. So you're saying it's learned and trainable. No, I'm saying it's genetic. Oh, okay. So, oh, wow. So let's say uh, air raid horns are a really good example of this. Mm-hmm. Air raid horns were used so frequently and were they around in World War One? I? I don't think so because there wasn't a lot of bombing oh, in yeah. World War One. Mm-hmm. But so in World War II, when they were used all over the place to signal that, that basically Germans were flying over and dropping bombs over England or over London, uh, that sound carried a deep resonant fear that passed in to mothers, to their children, to their children, to their children, which is why a lot of us, when we hear that now, even if it's like a test for, you know, whatever's yeah. going on, it's, it's deeply, deeply unsettling. Mm-hmm. And I think that that also plays into 
there's a lot of erratic movement that are going on inside of the Brothers Quay films. There is a lot of um, hyper-fast gesturing with fingers, mm-hmm. a lot of twitching, a lot of spinning, a lot of eye rolling, like in a very um, unsettling manner that's happening very quickly that I find to be personally upsetting. The, the, the way that I can associate that with why I might find that unsettling, even though the image itself is not that bad, is maybe quick movements and jerky movements are something that genetically we are predisposed to looking out for mm-hmm. to keep ourselves safe. So I think in the terms of even though these are not horror directors, so to speak, they have found a way to speak to the genetic anxiety that many, many people have because it's been passed down through generation and generation and generation. Mm-hmm. And that's why they're often associated with, you know, people people always mistake the Brothers Quay for doing tool videos. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, right. You know, where the dark, dingy, dusty, erratic, shaky movement that is just like, oh, this is so upsetting. But why is it upsetting? A few reasons that come to mind for me is that they intentionally will skip frames mm-hmm. um, and they intentionally don't have the dolls have eyes or they can't walk in normal ways. So there's a number of just like disassociative, kind of weird detachment things that they do that are otherworldly but also they'll do just enough to make it seem real and then throw in these weird fantastical elements whether it's um having objects like the dandelion seeds you know represent plants or trees or whatever or the use of string and pulleys and things like that yep where it creates this weird internal logic that makes sense for the world that is like, okay, this is all like carefully calculated, but it is so different than anything I'm used to that it's like, yeah, it's just alien. Yeah. So I find that what you see on camera and what is inferred on camera, as well as like the motions of the characters and the way things are set up implies of a larger and more chaotic world that we don't get to see. So there's things happening off screen or things that happened well before this is ever being recorded that are it's like the shifting sand underneath our feet we don't really know how big this world is or how small it is what the rules are and the veil between like the what is what is safe and what is not safe is very thin so to pick up on what you're saying there brady i wrote down this thing about the sort of blurred line of anthropomorphism in the movie so for example it's like i'll just read it It's not miniaturized simulacra of our own world because there are moments when the characters interact with the real world. For example, in um, Street of Crocodiles where the strings get cut by like the master or whatever. Uh, It's a parallel jungle of detritus, wires, ash, and bone animated and breathing outside of our sight, inside crawl spaces between walls and underneath yesterday's wet newspaper. So basically it's Toy Story except written by Kafka's personal taxidermist. But the idea is that we don't know what the rules are and the rules are changing all the time. No, that, you're, right. you're right. You're right. And it's the, there is a whole kingdom that is happening kind of in the subtext. There's also this term that Bruno Schultz uses, the author of The Street of Crocodiles, where he says, uh, generatio equivoca, which is this idea of a species of beings only half organic, a kind of pseudofauna, the result of a fantastic fermentation of manner. So this idea that you can basically reanimate uh, organic material to be living in a way. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that informs this kind of decomposed thing or decomposed objects that are then reanimated. And so Half, I think that's, yeah, yeah it cre- I think that's the other alien. Uh, oh, completely. And if you think of the Brothers Quay, if they, if they considered themselves to be essentially like choreographers of dreams, like it, it all works really well. <laughs> well, they do consider themselves choreographers. They don't, they don't consider themselves directors yeah, not, necessarily. Like narrating. Yeah, they... I mean, they, they've talked about uh, how the moment that a project is greenlit, sometimes they'll just throw the script completely out of the window because as the, as the score comes in and they're building the sets, they realize that whatever they had in mind for the first time is taking on a completely different meaning and they'll rewrite an entire script. Um, yeah, so they see like the, the um, script writing process is basically just being a part of like the bureaucracy to get projects passed. Exactly, mm. exactly. And they, they do over and over and over again, the two of them speak together simultaneously uh, about how important the music is overall. Yeah. That no matter what is happening visually, it's all because of what's happening musically. And they seem to have agreed on like who they like as their musician. Is it one guy? Or has it has been like multiple people? Like who does their music? Uh, they worked with a guy specifically for the first few shorts back in the 80s, but then they branched out to different people like um, Stockhausen, who is a pretty well-known like experimental mm-hmm. classical electronic musician mm-hmm. who they'd worked with for In Absentia, okay. uh, the, the 2001 about the woman in the uh, mental institution. Mm-hmm. And okay. that, if you notice, like the sound on that one is really disjointed. There's a lot of sampling and music concrete kind of style of like mm. splicing different samples together. Yeah. Mm. Um, whereas if you go back to the stuff in the eighties, you'll notice there's a very consistent trend of like, uh, the organ and mandolin or the it's, it's like, it's like if you guys have seen Beetlejuice and if you haven't come on, but, uh, it's it's like the fiddle from Beetlejuice, like that, that yes. kind of like if if Satan was playing you a fi- like a song on the fiddle, mm-hmm. that's, if, he was, yeah. if he was challenging you, yes, for your like, soul, yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's what it sounds like. Yeah, so there was some consistency in the '80s, and then they moved on where they actually, I think, experimented more with music as a way of informing their approach. Because in the, one of the interviews that we all saw on that the collection, the DVD that's either the BFI or the Zeitgeist Films collection. There's there's an edition in the US and one in the UK. I don't know which one we mm-hmm. watched, but they did a, the Quay Brothers did a, a, an interview and they talked about how they use different building blocks in their different shorts. And one of the building blocks was music for some of them. So they would do like stage design or like design of the world, then music then move on and talk about lighting and, and story and stuff like that. So just it, it stood out to me that they intentionally were pointing out the sequence of events, which is kind of inverted right? in mm-hmm. a way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that highlights... Um, it did make me wonder, like, if, if, the, if what's coming first, so like they, they have a general idea and then they get this piece of music and the piece of music is creating the scene or if they're... Like, what's mapping what? And I think it depends, right? And I think they try to, for as... For as obtuse as they can be, they actually do try to clue the viewer in on a lot of their movies with title cards. Yes. Yeah. Usually the title cards are at the end. So oh, how did you weird. feel about that, Mr. Title Cards? These were fine. Okay. These were totally acceptable. <laughs> they get a pass. All right. These are totally acceptable yeah. because it, they, they were they did they did two things. One was it it was that's a really good question. I didn't even think about this because they were supplementary. They were they were not breaking up the action. They either waited 
till the very end or did them at the very beginning where they gave a little bit of a clue about who it was about based on a tribute or what it was influenced by. And then also the title card was a art piece of art itself. Right. Where a lot of times you could, if you kind of squint your eyes and not actually look at the lettering, it just is an interesting abstract piece mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I was not only okay with it, I was DTF with title cards. <laughs> Can I just walk out a, a quick theory on the music aspect? Yeah. Sure. So, and again, I say this is theory because I can't back it up with any interviews or anything I've read about this. The Brothers Quay are incredible control freaks. Like they have total and absolute mastery over everything that they do, except for the music. So like anything, any aspect that they're involved in, title cards, Mm -hmm. typography, all the modeling, all the lighting, all the camera work, it's just the two of them, right? And then the only thing that they really have to depend on that's not them is music because they're not musicians. Mm-hmm. So it makes me think that they find a piece of music that they like and they just build around it because that's the only thing that's not in their control. But you know what? That, you're probably right. Yeah. You're probably 100% right with that. Because yeah. I, 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 I kept yep. I kept thinking about that. I mean, it's <laughs> obviously the the movements, the puppet movements and the armature movements are mapped to the music. And I, I just kept wondering, like, I'm like, I wonder, like, which came first? What came first? Yeah. The quays or the music? You said lock it in. I was just envisioning we're trying to crack a vault and it's like we locked in the right, you know, you got to do the three number code and you're like, yep, we got one of the three. There it is. What it's like every time you get one of the numbers, it's like a distant shadow of one of the Quay brothers. No, no, it's both of them. And they're talking simultaneously. It's like, you have broken number two. Now you must know what to do. Oh boy, did we get a riddle? (laughs) It's like like a a dripping egg and like a dead rat. think that the twins in the matrix are based on the quay brothers <laughs> now that you say that yes 100 yeah. yeah. i've gave, been holding that back ever since you walked in my house i was like I, they gave i need i need to know i need to know if they if they agree they, well, gave, they, they gave him sunglasses and that's it yeah you know what they okay so the quay brothers are are very very fair-skinned men who look like data from next generation uh-huh um but with like with like wild wild white long hair that they keep in pony well one of them keeps in a ponytail and and it's the type of twin speak where they obviously can anticipate each other perfectly right yes. and so when one when one is talking and loses a word the other the the twin can like pick out the most like precise yes. thing that the other needs in order to finish their thought. 
and vice versa. And they sit, they sit thigh to thigh. Like they're very close together all the time, like touching constantly. And, and so I was, I was like, these guys are speaking either with like, like tapping their fingers on each other's thighs or they have like some kind of telepathy. For sure. So, and hopefully they've watched David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers. Oh boy. Sure. To, to have <laughs> oh God. a few tips and tricks of do's and don'ts of twin behavior. Oh and boy. The psychic connection <laughs> connecting you. Between the two of them, it's it's like one enormous brain. Yeah. One collective brain. Yes. I think that's the right way to go though, is to do creative projects together because you see twins all the time in sports where one is significantly better than the other one and they share like almost the exact same name. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and so you can be confused with watching and being like, oh yeah, that's right. You're the bad brother. <laughs> <laughs> Even though they're identical twins, right? So I, with this, it's like there's no scapegoating. There's no like one's better than the other. It's, no, I, think the point is, I think the symbiotic thing, it, it might be strange because we're not used to it. But to me, I respect it. It's like the only healthy way to go here. I honestly cannot tell which one... Uh, if there if there is a if a weak spot in one and, and a strength in the other, the, I mean yeah. the two of them work so yeah. so closely and so on top of each other that I really really they're one don't. Unit. Yeah, they're I I can't they can't be separated. We joke, but seriously, like there is that element of like watching their work. You know, Christopher Nolan did that that short documentary about them called mm-hmm. Quay. It's like yeah. eight eight or nine minutes, so you see a glimpse behind the scenes of them working together, and they are clearly a well oiled. Uh, machine as a team, right? Like very intentional in terms of who does what, you know, like they, their, their principles will be things like, Hey, if you build the doll, you animate it because it's like you're embodying that character. Yes. So hearing them talk about their process, again, joking aside, pretty dope. Like, yeah. They, they, I mean, like how in sync they are. It's just like one brain with four arms. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like working incessantly. Yeah. yeah. They're not even like characteristically there. There's not even enough between the two that I can necessarily differentiate mm. B- between who's who. Yeah. Um, I noticed that one of them likes to dress consistently versus the other. Like a little more flashy. Yeah. What? One dresses a little more flashy. The other one seems to enjoy purple. <laughs> purple's, purple's a strange, purple's a strange color. Likes to wear purple. That's all I know. Yeah. Purple's yeah, a strange color. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. One certainly, I, I, and I think you're right. I disagreed with you before when you said that uh, you think one's more extroverted. And I was like, no, 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 no. He's not extroverted. I think you're right. I think he is more extroverted. But there's a one is extremely methodical with his with what he says and right. and, is, and is speaking, and the other one is um, uh, shoots a little bit more from the hip and stutters a bit. And I, but I still can't tell you who's who. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I I I do want to say so. These are not the Quay Brothers are not the first guys to be doing stop motion animation, but they they have a way of making it so visceral in a way that the other um, other artists that we were talking about earlier, like uh, Walleran and um, and Jan, can't do or haven't done, or even I- or even Stinkmeyer, like. So Svankmeyer, that's the one I would... He's the one that I would say is the most visceral um, compared to the Quay brothers or the most uh, akin. In fact, I mean, they, they have a um, short called Cabinet of Jan Svankmeyer. Yes. So they're, they're intentionally paying tribute to him. But I mean, he did a movie called Little Otik, which is 
about a couple who can't have a child. And so the husband goes and gets a tree stump out in the yard and they turn it into a baby. Um, and then the one he did after that, which is lunacy is about a guy who thinks he meets Marquis de Sade. And it's this whole delusion about raw meat and the whole movie's animated with raw meat. So sorry, his let, stuff is very visceral. Let me, let me rephrase that then. When I watch Quay brothers versus Spank Meyer or some of the other artists, I feel like I'm in the room. They, there, there's a way that they have incorporated light and camera angle and camera panning that the other artists I feel like haven't really mastered or, or did or thought to do that makes me feel like I'm actually inside of the universe. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I agree. I think that really is the most pronounced in the Street of Crocodiles, which is their breakout yes. hit, right? Like that's yes. considered probably the top three. Yes. Um, it's the one I saw in art school. Yeah, yeah, and so there is this kind of, I don't know what lenses they're using, but there, there was a clear jumping off point with that one where I think that was what, their fourth or fifth short, and so you were able to see this progression and all of a sudden that one came out and it was like, yeah, they cracked the code. Yes. Yeah. They figured it out and a lot of it was like the camera was moving into the scene and you could see it like moving in and and out between like the window panes and there was like all the texture and stuff. It was the mm-hmm. texture, but it was also like coming at kind of a, um, an awkward angle or, or panning or coming yeah. in out of focus. And it, that even for, even for most filmmakers was right. more engaging, uh, than, um, than I had experienced in a while where I, I, I really, really was like, wow. Like I, it took me out of watching and going like, this is amazing. Like, Whatever they would decided to experiment with in order to play play around with, okay, we've we've done the armatures, we can do the movement, we can do the stop go, but what else do we have to work with? And they were like, let's fuck with the camera for a while, well, and they came up with some ama- uh, like amazing stuff. You can tell as far back as even like their first film, and I'm gonna mispronounce this, Nocturne Artificialia, mm-hmm. Art- Artificialia, Artificilia, whatever, whatever. <laughs> You can tell, even though they're, they're working with like a, an art store maquette, like that super simple, like wooden model that they dressed up a little bit. They're clearly interested in like making uh, stop motion like more cinematic with the way that they're doing like lighting. Like they're they're trying, and I don't know exactly to what in the whole very peculiar um, like strafing and like scanning. Yes style of camera movement that definitely shows up in Street of Crocodiles. I don't know what that's all about, but you can tell that they have this interest in cinematic lighting, but then this very alien camera movement. Yeah, it's almost like it's on a railing. Yes. It looks computerized. So here the stuff yes. was being made in the 80s, but I think it's because they were so mathematically precise that they were building these railings. I don't, I don't know the technical terms, but they were probably putting the camera on some sort of... Uh, jigs or fixtures. Yeah, yeah. that created this rigidity that mm-hmm. almost betrays the organic aspects of the yeah of what's being displayed it's, it's its own character and you get a glimpse of that they they show they show that in the christopher nolan short where oh, you, he gets okay. down on the ground and you see him with the little mm. um camera pulley thing okay or tracking device and this is why like going back to like creepy twin stuff the two of them are 10 pound of genius and a two pound bag kind of thing <laughs> like between the two of them and if if they're getting bored and they're thinking of new ways to kind of push the limit of what they want their projects to look like I mean they're doing it in ways that I would have never considered and you had mentioned I think last week or maybe a week before where we were talking about 
Um, what happens when you have an actor who might be a little dull or static on screen? Well, what do you do to change that up? It's like you, you animate the background. And that's what they did for that first maquette that they had in Nocturne uh, Artificialia where they were saying like oh, well our our maquette is is super stiff we can't we can't get it to you know move and gesticulate the way that we'd like to so we made the background more dynamic and i, and I mm. in my mind i was like well i never i just would have tossed the maquette i would have never even thought to <laughs> like, i would have never thought to like engage different parts of the scene more and and yeah. the so um as this develops through their work and they have i mean you know starting with gosh you know, back in the seventies and going until now, like they have project after project where it's just getting more and more fluid and complex, but also the detail that goes into these is mind blowing. Something that comes up frequently when I was watching this is not just the uh, technical proficiency with everything that they're doing in terms of like the fluidity of the animation or the creativity of the shots was their competency as technicians and just building the things that they need to be able to make these movies. Yes. They probably have their own custom built camera and lighting systems using like miniature lights and miniature rails and miniature this and all this like custom made like rigging equipment just to be able to film these things. And I'm thinking about that that local artist, the Hacks and Throbo guy. Oh, God, he's that, amazing. That makes all those like yeah, miniature yeah. stuff. It's like, I have to imagine that the Quay brothers, or brothers Quay, have to have like their own little workshop to be able to just to produce the stuff that they need to be able to film with. Mm-hmm. And like in that uh, Christopher Nolan uh, mm-hmm. short, they talk about like their their sort of whims about picking certain models versus another or yes. like the glossiness of an eye or whatever uh, because certain things just look better on film or a little mm-hmm. more alive or mm-hmm. what have you. But I, I have to imagine that they have like quite the workshop to be able to just to build the stuff. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're like the artsy James Cameron as twins. Yeah. And sure. there's a, a kind of a tip of the hat to that uh, with their short, The Cabinet of Jan Svankmeyer, which came out in 1980, 81, something like that. 84. Okay. Whoa. Okay. Much later than I I was thinking. But they actually show a guy pulling out different drawers and you open the drawer and there's little mini drawers and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I think there's something in their brain about categorizing different things. I I can just envision like drawers with arms and drawers with Mm -hmm. like crow's heads and drawers with like wooden balls and thread yeah. and yeah. and so yeah I think there was kind of this recognition in that one a call out to a part of their process yeah where the master was teaching the this, this student and the master in this case was Jan Fankmer and the little doll kid with yes. the head oh, being right. yeah. the, the yeah. little assistant guy yeah the little was kid was them one. yeah oh yeah absolutely I can see that absolutely yeah I'm trying to remember that one now that was the first one we watched uh, was well one of the no no the second, second one second one we watched yeah that was the earliest I can think of that introduced the wooden ball that bounces up or down the stairs. Oh, yeah. I think. What is the significance of the wooden ball in your mind? Well, specifically for that... um, Because it shows up up like for years and years and decades. I'm not not sure. There's a lot of things that are reoccurring themes in all of them, especially like uh, um, um, hands that are disconnected from the armature. Yep. So mm-hmm. that that do their own thing. So that's that's a reoccurring thing in a lot of their short films. But as far as the wooden ball, I don't know. I it's introduced in um, the cabinet of Jan Svankmeyer as basically Svankmeyer teaching the boy how to do stop go mm-hmm. in the actual short film. 
So that's, you know, so he's he's showing him, like, this is how you do stop go. It's so cool. And the ball is in the scene, but the ball also is playing separately in its own universe as going up or down the stairs. And I just, I, I'm not, I don't know if that has, like, a through line. A lot of, a lot of their short films, had I not looked into it, I really, really wouldn't understand what the narrative is. Right. And I, I think that if we have to think of the... Brothers Quay as choreographers of dreams that we have to <laughs> we just have to laugh. We we have to look at all of these like symbols as being like coded. Like we don't know what's behind the veil. All of the characters, all of the elements, they're all wearing a costume, they're all wearing a mask, and underneath the mask there's something else. I don't know what the ball represents. My feeling about the ball is that all it represents is the passage of time. Is that all we're supposed to do with the ball is keep keep pace. Mm. Mm-hmm. But that's it, and beyond that, I don't know. You are a gosh damn genius. That a makes Josh sense to me. Damn de- oh. Josh, 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 damn genius. Ding, dang, dong, <laughs> dingaling. Yeah, that that resonates with me because the ball shows up in the um, still in uh shorts with his the name rabbit. alive, uh, the, his name alive um, music videos. I think it might show up in absent in absentia. It might not. I don't remember. Um, what about the uh, the sort of magnetized um, like wire strands? Oh, that I are think like that's I think that's great. Waving around. Uh, Is, you think that's just like a fun visual effect, or you think that's supposed to have some kind of significance? You know, for, for those things, there's actually part of me that just is is. Um, I, th- I think it's how far they can take their quote-unquote technology to create the stop-go animation. I, creating the illusion mm. that thread is mapping itself onto someone's calligraphy um, and, and doing it in, in an insanely precise way is like, for me, just them flexing to be like, we're, we're creating... I mean, these there's, there's, there's stop-motion animation that is insane and creative and inspiring to watch but then there's what they do where it's so precise and fluid and and it and it moves well and it blends into each scene and each like um you know like a like a a thread becomes a ball of thread which becomes a wooden ball which becomes like it's all done so easily to to build on what you're saying about the flex is like you think of most stop motion animation or animation in general as being like these kind of like contained clean environments, right? And they're doing all this stuff with super precision, super organic flow, and like these like obviously like dirty, messy environments. Yes. Like the the floor of the the, the whatever is like covered in ash or whatever it is, some kind of like, you know, um, like charcoal dust. Yeah. And all the movements and all the action that happens in a scene are, are coming off precise. They're, they're probably, they probably have to have like waves of tending the dust, like to get the dust back into position. Yes. I think they constantly, even, even just like, again, with watching the threads being pulled through scene to scene and then the threads are being old and decrepit and dusty and they're just they're, Everything moves so perfectly that it's like the two of them are, have some like divine connection to they they have some innate ability to just be able to do this and make it mm-hmm. seem like it's no big deal, but I mean specifically for rehearsals for extinct uh, anatomies, like the precision that went in to doing the thread work in that, doing the calligraphy that ends up showing up in that, like it's 
mind blowing. Ah, that's I the was one blown with the away. character that's like poking its pimple yeah. or with the barcodes but or whatever that's like vibrating. The, and... But the but the barcodes are threads, and mm-hmm. then like the all the thread means something, and it's like that's okay. Quick aside. But like any time they actually introducing organic matter into like grandma's doll shed where <laughs> everything is kind of dusty, but it's all like it's all fake. And then all of a sudden there's just like meat. Mm-hmm. I found to be so disgusting. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. That... I found it to be more disturbing than anything else I'd seen in a really long time. Yeah. The, the mm. scene in uh, Street of Crocodiles where like the screws punch their way into like the clock face and then flop out the other side through like a sack of meat. Yes. It looked like a weird anus and it like opened up out of a mirror and you're like, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> God. Because it's so, it's so atypical for the rest of the environment well, that it, it's just like real kind of, it's mm-hmm. jarring. Mm-hmm. But yeah. It's, the one, the thing that Killed me. We were watching the Epic of Gilgamesh last night, the nineteen, the, their 1985 one. And their main character has these weird little like pinchy lips. And it was like sucking oh, yeah. on something. And I was like, like, I was like, 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 like It was like doing like this weird little thing. Like the little and I was goat like, lips. Oh, I was so grossed out by it. I was like, no. Is that the one where the guy, the Epic of Gilgamesh, is that the one where the character's on a tricycle? Yes. And he's two dimensional. Yeah, there's yeah, there's yeah, also yeah. like uh, some strange uh, sensuality. Yes. And that one okay. as well. Where there's like the there's like the um the it's like, it's wooden like, torso of a vaguely of a woman. Of like grabbing but, her but with like uh the like the guts. Yes. And there was also like they had they had set up like um, like two chicken thighs to look like a buttocks and yes. they were like touching oh, yeah. the buttocks. Or was that No, that might have been Street of Crocodiles. That might have been Street of Crocodiles. It's all a blur now. It is. There's... They they did that a couple of times because there was the the comb which has the ladder and the hands are climbing up the ladder. And as the hands reach the top of the ladder, because the hands have been disconnected from the body and the body's at the bottom of the ladder, the, the hands climb up and the very top of the ladder, it starts jerking off the rung or the things in the ladder. And oh then yeah, the, to get it to grow. Yeah. And the ladder yeah. ends up growing leaves and then the hands reconnect to the doll body and then the b- doll starts uh, going up the ladder. Well, I'm glad we ended the drought of horny movies. <laughs> yeah. For you, Brady. Yeah, me too. Me too. We got there. We, <laughs> we got, got there. there. It, took it was us a, a while. nice bridge to get us where we're going for next week. So, do you guys have any favorites from the ones that you've watched? Yeah, I think that. In Absentia, which I talked about a little bit before, is my favorite. So this is a black and white uh, short that has a mixture of a woman sitting at a, a desk, so it actually has a human in it, and then a bunch of animated pencils or pencil lead tips, if that makes sense. So you actually see the tips of pencils that are broken off from her writing, and those get animated. And so you're kind of in this room with her for the most part, but then there are a couple times where you are outside of the window and it's kind of hinting at the fact that this apartment or this place is strange. There's something otherworldly about it. And she's doing strange things with the paper. She's like writing with two hands on the, the pencil and kind of running her hand over the writing as she's, as she's going. And mm-hmm. so it seems like it would just be nonsense when you're done watching the movie, right? Like the, the paper is full of scribbles and it's like, okay, it's just a woman. She's writing. It, it seems like it's just a, 
commentary about the creative process and how difficult it is to create. And then the title card at the end says, to E.H., who lived and wrote to her husband from an asylum, Herzen Schatzi Kolm, which is German for sweetheart come. So I looked this up and it's actually based on a woman from the early 1900s who was schizophrenic, who was committed. um, And she wrote on these pieces of paper over and over and over and over again in small lettering, sweetheart come. And it's just this, it looks like if you just look at the piece of paper, it's just little squiggle lines over and over and over again. But now going back and realizing that that's what they were doing with the movie, it's this really incredible uh, portrayal of mental illness. Mm. So that one blew my fucking mind. Like, what does it look like on the inside of those scribbles? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that like one creating those universes. Yes. Universes. And that was also the one that had the Carl Heinz Stockhausen music. So it was mm. the most out there musically. So experiment like as a as a fan of like what can you do with music and bend the boundaries of music. Um, I was most interested uh, with that one as well. So that one's from two thousand and. Uh, yeah, they also animate her, meaning that like she doesn't walk in the frame. Like they actually do stop motion for an, a human, which is also strange. I and it cool. also looks like really upsetting when you yeah. watch yes. it. Yeah, yeah, it's. I don't. I. I would. I'm gonna do some more research to figure out what exactly about that kind of like jittering movement we find, or we associate with being upsetting or creepy. But. Yeah. You know, it is what it is. Josh, what about you? Yeah, so I mean, I know it's super basic, but I'm just going to go back to sort of my first real experience with uh, Brothers Quay was Street of Crocodiles. So I had already encountered some Brothers Quay stuff before, but I didn't know it at the time. So um, my first experience was probably the music video Sledgehammer, <laughs> which they worked on because they did some commercial stuff as well. So mm-hmm. they weren't always just making their own things. They would occasionally pay the bills with other stuff but i don't know which sequence they did for the music video sledgehammer but anyway that's beside the point the peter gabriel song yeah that's correct yeah. yes and at one point i actually saw in- institute benjaminta but at that point i had no idea who brothers quay were Is that and, their feature yeah the featured film okay. with uh, alice kirsch and mark rylance mm. Um, it went way over my head. I didn't really understand it. But then when I was in art school, they showed us Street of Crocodiles. And at that point, I was like, holy crap, this is fucking amazing. I, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. It, Even though I had kind of seen things sort of similar to it in, in this regard or that, uh, as a complete package, it like blew my fucking socks off. And this was like 2003. I was like uh, 21, 22 years old. Mm. And uh, yeah, it was just so overall impressive as a as a complicated experimental narrative, as a um, having not just the, the character design and the interaction of the characters, but having this very unique and very complete world that everything was living in, uh, Street of Crocodiles just rocked my shit. Yeah. Um, it's, it's the most popular for a reason. Yeah. It's a and, great it's a great film. And, and and for them personally it was obviously like a big step forward in front of their other works. Oh yeah. In terms of the way it was received as well as like their own effort. Yes. It feels the most polished. Yeah. If that word makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, I mean, the one that I really enjoyed was short and sweet, but I really, really like the calligrapher. So that was nineteen ninety one. Um it's probably a minute long, maybe. Yeah, it's short. And it's papercraft. And, uh, you know, it's this really, really beautiful, elaborate 
a calligrapher who is presented with all of these quills that he can pull down and write with and the quills become six of his hands and they're all writing simultaneously and then the quill become they're they they're drawing um they're drawing a wing and the wing becomes a feather again and he puts it in his cap and that's the end but it's like it's amazing mm-hmm. and the sheer amount of effort that goes into creating that project for maybe maybe 30 seconds longer mm-hmm. is insane. Yeah. It's probably the least creepy out of all of them, <laughs> which is not, I, I love me creepy. I love me some deep, deep creepiness, but it, it's probably including the rice Krispies commercial. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. And including like sledgehammer, it's way less creepy than sledgehammer, yeah. but it just, it's, uh, it's very different from the rest of their work, but I really, really enjoyed that one. It's just, uh, it kind of, I think it kind of shows the palette they can, they can work with and pull mm-hmm. from. And, um, I really enjoyed that. You get the impression that they suffer rejection very poorly. <laughs> because you notice at the end of that one, at the calligrapher is like submitted and rejected by BBC two yes, or yeah. whatever that was. Yeah. And then we watched that, uh, that uh, I think it was a BFI interview at the beginning of the series. Mm-hmm. They talked about how channel four doesn't support animation like they used mm-hmm. to. It's like, you know, half their works, their early works were all for channel four. That's actually worth looking into. I, I was, I was researching that a little bit and there was a, very specific group of influential people at the BBC who created Channel Four for more experimental things in the eighties. Mm. So I think almost also, like a almost like a liquid television. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I can imagine that probably next to you know having questions about their work, the other conversation that they must find themselves in constantly is how um, Europeans are shocked that they're American. <laughs> yeah, well, they have been thoroughly. Yeah, they're Europe. Pianized? I don't yeah. know if that's yeah, a word. No, I mean the, they've been like they've been there since '69. They, yeah, they've been in there '69. Yeah. They barely have an American accent. Yeah, like they're they're so and they're so Eurocentric anyway in terms of like their artistic references mm-hmm. and like yeah. their their whole focus. Like Philadelphia was a long time ago. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, but I do I do imagine that like they're probably sitting down having dinner with someone and and you know they've got their glass of wine going like to think that these Americans are, you know and I'm like I'm like you can have them. It's fine. It's fine. The most most American thing that you can see from them is their advertisement choices. So we Mm -hmm. haven't brought this up yet, but we've, we've kind of hinted at it with the Peter Gabriel sledgehammer or the rice Krispie thing, but, or the NH motherfucking L. (laughs) (laughs) Woo. Woo. There's this kind of TikTok thing that they do. And I think we talked about this episodes ago about, you know, that people who are really creative, who need to be able to fund their projects that are actually kind of unhinged. Barton Fink. Yep. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) <laughs> Second time I brought that up, but go ahead. I was so confused because I was like, wait, what? Um, so if you look at their filmography, it's like you can see they do a couple of short films that we've talked about that are much more their creative process than what they want to do. And then it's like Sesame Street. or <laughs> yeah. Right? And there, there's these, or uh, Rice Krispies or NHL. And so you can kind of piece together this TikTok thing where they, they admitted in this interview that they try to do advertising to fund the studio. Well, they've said that it's like, if you find the right commercial, yeah. you're good for a while. Yeah. You know, and I, I and that's know. a very American thing, the way they do it, because the, the choices they make are like American companies making American products that are nothing. Those like residual checks are no joke. Right. So whoever <laughs> is in these companies who are like, you know who I want to get is the brothers Quay to sell my sugary rice, crispy treats. Oh my God. And they're, they're probably a publicly traded company. I mean, 
well, uh, I don't know. I mean, so it's like the fact that their board of directors or their like executives are like, yeah, sold. You can go ahead and use marketing money for this weirdo thing. I, I'm just thinking, like, well, whoever, I mean, we, I'm sorry, but we can we can think like we haven't mentioned Keith Griffiths, who is the oh, producer yeah. for every single one of the things that they've oh. done. Yeah, so he's, they, he's, they, he's hugely influential in their early career for sure. Completely. So they met in art right. school, and he literally has produced almost every single one of their projects. So wouldn't and they created their um, their Kennewick Studios. He took them like by the hand and like yeah. basically got them started. Exactly. So it wouldn't surprise me, um, and this is not confirmed, but it wouldn't surprise me if Keith had. Uh, some kind of like birdie reasoning power on their shoulder to Got just it. be like, hey, you know, like if we're trying to fund this project, it couldn't hurt to Makes do sense. this thing. So Keith is allegedly the capitalist slut. Maybe, maybe that's allegedly. Just, that's allegedly. I allegedly. think he's probably just like the uh, well-meaning mentor. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but I the, but the three of them created Kennewick Studios um, in Southwark, and they've been working together forever. Oh, Kennewick. That's okay. So that yeah. name's shown up. That's on the title cards. Wait. Uh, nope, that's not right. Uh, that's not right. What's Take up? all that back. It's K-O-N-I-N-C-K. Conic. 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 Conic Studios. Okay. So don't listen to anything I just said about Kennewick. <laughs> <laughs> I won't. Thank you. I Thank have you. to imagine that if you were the uh, PBS executive looking at your Sesame Street... <laughs> song that you got back you just burnt the film you just burnt it that right then and there that was pretty weird yeah it was so that was strange. like it was just so unsettling you could I, I could like, tell well that they intentioned, were I could tell that they were annoyed making it yes yeah it was like a cult trying to explain rain to its children mm-hmm. it's just this weird it's got this weird menace mm-hmm. yeah this is why weather. all your this is why all of your mothers sleep in the same room with father yes God. <laughs> <laughs> yes you nailed it <laughs> There's okay. weird controlling menace behind There it that, is. That there it book. is. So yeah, we we touched on the horror aspect. And here comes the menace. <laughs> like there is something that's unspoken, but it's in every moment of yes. their stuff. Ugh. A darkness. Oh yeah. Despite despite how terrifying some of the I guess the, some of their more like uh, mainstream attempts are at advertising, you know, they definitely they have their style. People always know when the Brothers Quay have kind of like touched on a project. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I think that's wonderful. I think that that's, I think, and it's, and their work is so weirdly modern that I forget that some of it is coming from the seventies and eighties. With that, guys, do you have an overall review of kind of what we've been going over the last week? On the last episode regarding Begotten, we hashed out whether the audience should be expected to seek out references, homages, influences, or other texts to make sense of the movie. I loved Begotten's imagery and mood, but was frustrated by how obtuse and impenetrable it was. And here we are, where I'm going to completely contradict myself. (laughs) The Brothers Quay movies require outside reading. There were multiple shorts where I was impressed visually and was wowed by the technical achievements, but they didn't emotionally move me until I read deeper into the tributes and the admiration that the brothers have for their influences. As I said, most notable to me was the portrayal of Emma Hawke's mental illness shown in Absentia, 
I think the short format works well for their style. I'm a bit hesitant to watch one of their feature-length movies because their stuff is pretty dense with meaning or obtuse enough that requires multiple viewings. We covered a lot of ground with this episode, so I don't feel up to the task with the rating. I recommend people watch the shorts collection. You can get in and get out quickly and drip feed them over time if it's not your cup of tea. They are unique voices, which is something to cherish. That's solid. Yeah, I was tr- I was struggling with like a numeric value that you know because how do you slap a numeric value on the butt of thirty videos? <laughs> <laughs> That's how. <laughs> what about you, Josh? The collective works of the brothers Quay are an obsessive ball of yarn. Or possibly a burlap sack of gristle, shadows, and insects <laughs> adorned with a tragic light bulb or a broken doll face. What I mean is that they are deliberately dense and esoteric. The whole thing is a result of fetishistic obsession based on obscure references to obscure artists. So don't punish yourself if it flies over your head, as it did for me. The feelings you have watching their stuff is the product, the process is the result. Enjoy the squirmy, dirty squalor of nightmares half remembered. The itching and fidgeting of a pair of creepy twins who never worked a day in retail. <laughs> <laughs> They're geniuses, by the way. It's pretty amazing. And I'm at a 10. Nice. <laughs> uh, like I was saying earlier, stop motion animation is nothing new. And I think despite its creator's best efforts, it always comes off a bit challenging and unsettling to watch. There is something we must associate with the jittery movements that creates an unease, whether it's meant to be there or not. Though the Quay brothers are not the first to take on the arduous process of stop motion, they certainly bring a level of fastidious care and obsession, which brings so much more to the short films than we normally see. I have to go back to what we talked about last week with Begotten and how the subconscious is tapped for a conversation through the images alone. The Quay brothers choreograph a ballet company of armatures to tell a genetic memory of a story. There are so many short films that there's to check out, but I do very much recommend starting with the most well-known, which is The Street of Crocodiles. What the two of them created in that 21-minute short was groundbreaking, in my personal opinion, not just with the stop-motion armatures, but the camera tracking, the angles, the, the feeling of claustrophobia to be inside the room with these armatures. It feels so ahead of its time that I constantly forget that these two have been around since the 70s and are themselves in their 70s. So, like Brady was saying, I think that it's very easy to kind of tap into these short films. Some of them are literally a minute long. And I think the longest they go is, what, 20 20, 20 minutes or so? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I highly, highly recommend it. These two are working myths. What they're creating is amazing. So, I, I also give their projects a 10. And I highly, highly recommend that our listeners go check them out. A lot of them can be found on YouTube. Um, and, uh, and yeah, with that, you guys, I wanted to thank you so much for kind of playing around in the viscera with me in the last couple of weeks. I know that was a kind of a a strange turn of events, but thank you for joining me for uh, experimental horror. Uh, again, this is Solid Six Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at Solid Six Podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Solid Six Podcast. Twitter is Solid Six Podcast. Mm. We are all on Letterboxd. I'm Bruja Jones. Josh is Joshua Griffith. I always want to say it's Joshua Griffith 69. Josh Griffith. Josh Spaceman. Oh, 69 shit. on Twitter. 
just Josh Baseman on Letterboxd. I love my boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Brady Kimball is Brady Kimball All Things. And again, please go ahead and uh, follow, rate, and review us. It goes a long way to helping us out to reach our lofty goals of whatever that looks like. And um, please leave us a voicemail. You can go to our website at solid6.net. Slap that voicemail icon. Brady, what are we doing next week? Oh, boy. I said the other week that I wasn't horny because Hustlers didn't really just, they didn't do it for me. You've been horny for weeks. <laughs> okay, so don't, you've been mad because we haven't been like giving you a platter of whatever you need. I don't know. It's summer. It's hot outside. I'm horny. You do the math. <laughs> so this next double feature is called Fantasy Babes. Yeah. yeah. So we're going to be covering Jack Hill's Sorceress from 1982, which he disavowed. He didn't want his name attached to it. So Jack Hill, for those who uh, are not aware, he did Coffee and Foxy Brown with our our friend Pam Greer. Um, And then the second movie we're covering is The Lost Empire from 1984, directed by Jim Wynarski. He directed, most famously, Chopping Mall, Return of Swamp Thing, Deathstalker 2, and 976 Evil 2. So... (laughs) Um, I've seen a surprising amount of them. <laughs> so, you know, we, we've been very thoughtful, you know, so I'm the, the pendulum of horniness may swing too far to the point of misogyny. <laughs> this might get to objectification and oh misogyny. So, uh, listener, beware that this isn't uh, going to be politically correct, I believe. Oh, boy. So <laughs> we're in the no spins. <laughs> <laughs> Buckle up, snowflakes. We're going to say the hard stuff. Yeah. So, I don't know. High West may or may not be sponsoring those. Yeah. I don't know. We haven't had a High West podcast in a while. Yeah. uh, If if you've been tuning into this podcast because of the last few, let's just say the next two (laughs) might confuse you. (laughs) Maybe not. It brings us right back to where we need to be. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Well, you guys, thank you again so much for joining us. You guys, thank you for being amazing co-hosts. And we will... uh, We'll be sliding down that river of goo next week for Fantasy Babes. I can't wait. (laughs) You wanted this. You wanted this music. Nightmare music. I asked for Calliope. I asked for Calliope. And this is (laughs) you deliver. (laughs) Adios. Make the haunted pork shop stop. (laughs) Thank you. Have a good night, guys. So many dirty doll faces. (laughs) Bye.